folks, welcome inside the Parisi pa Palace, high above 3773 East Broadway. This is a live edition of the Jake Feinberg Show. Coming on Power Talk, thank you so much for making us part of your day today, wherever you are in this galaxy. And uh, as I continue to move forward in this extended pause, there's no travel, there's no ability to liberate through spiritual music. There's no ability to heal through communal spiritual music, and whatever is out there right now, quite frankly, is watered down, and I recognize that there is a need for safety, but quite frankly, it's not the way music is supposed to be presented, and I worry, moving forward, uh, that the, the, the biggest tragedy out of all of this, aside from just the sheer amount of death and callousness towards that death, is the fact that music moving forward when things get back to quote unquote normal will be priced out for anybody except the super wealthy. Conchetta Abate, welcome to the Jake Feinberg Show. Hi, thanks for having me. It's an honor to have you. I, I, um, I heard from a big music fan of mine uh, and a dear friend and also a very successful <clears throat> uh, wealth management advisor in New York, that City Winery is um, going to at least float the idea of beginning to have shows, uh, including in that would be the price of the ticket and also a COVID test, which would cost $50. And then you would, it would be one of the quick tests. And then um, assuming you would uh, uh, pass it, you could go in and then you obviously have to well, I mean, it's up to you, but, you know, assuming you'd order beer, wine, or food. I mean, Conchetta, I am not pretending that, that you have the answers to this stuff. What I am gravely – I can't – I live in Tucson. I spent the mm -hmm. last couple of years traveling to see my peers and older cats um, perform on the bandstand so I could heal my dis-ease. And I am – absolute and I don't know what to do about it because I also care about my elders and I respect my elders my elders help me find my voice so I'm not some person who's out there you know I, I wear a mask all that stuff but I, I mean in your mind's eye when he do you believe that just I mean as it is it's not cheap to go out and see music sometimes but then you're going to now have to be required to get a COVID test which is an additional amount of money and I was thinking you know, all the stuff that we looked at before as boutique, um, things that only very wealthy people could afford. Uh, you know, I can't think of great examples. I mean, I guess maybe sports or the, the, the you know, very high-end stuff. And the only way for people to feel comfortable now moving forward is going to be, it's going to be even more expensive to go see live music. And the musicians themselves were already part of the working poor. So you can riff on this any way you want, but I just, I mean, and I respect, you know, I know City Winery is losing millions of dollars. I know that they are, people are struggling and desperate. I just wonder through all of it, how you let go of control and how you can continue to be uh, creative and inspiring to people around you because your aura is what drew me to you. How did you find out about my music? Was it? No, this is a this is a direct spiritual connection. So I just feel that you are fearless. You can go into any genre. I I have no. I am not an aficionado of Conchetta Abate's music. Oh no! I mean, did 
how did you find my work? How did you? Well, no, we connected. We, we we connected on new media. I saw our mutual friends, and I recognized that you left this planet a long time ago. That you understand how to play spiritual music. So I'm going on total intuition and instinct. Oh, uh, what is new media? What is? Oh, new media. What is that? You don't know what yeah. that? Oh, new media. That's what people pathetically call social media. Oh. But, 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 but as a journalist, you can drive consciousness through that. And so I do that in a myriad of ways. All the stuff that I put up is original content. I've done 2,000 mm -hmm. radio interviews, mm -hmm. wrote, you know, three books in the last year. I've done, you know, so it's, it's audio, video, and uh, print. You put it into d diverse mediums. And I'm so sick and tired of these idiots talking about how new media is the cancer of our society. It, the problem is... The cancer of our society is the brain rot that goes on by people receiving information on new media instead of producing information. Good art is to be shared, not to be judged. And if you can build your own authentic fan base and you start driving content, it's the greatest tool in the world. And so I'm so sick and tired of hearing people, oh, yeah, you know, the fake news. and the, the. It's like, dude, people need to think for themselves. The rot is coming from the inside. But that being said... I go after people that I know that can enter the intergalactic or that I find in the intergalactic. So, I mean, basically you can riff on what I was saying any way you want, but do you, do you, do you worry at all that music will become something only that the super wealthy can afford to attend? Uh, no, I'm not worried about that. I think music is universal and everybody can tap into it. Um, and it's, an innate part of human existence. Uh, maybe only the super wealthy will be able to go to city winery. <laughs> that's not the only place where music no, is happening. No, 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 but no, no, I, I like where you're coming from. First of all, are you're going to tell, but, you're going to tell me that, that, um, because, uh, Conchetta, I need to liberate when I see live music. I can't sit there and stare at somebody's facility. I want to let the body dance. I want to heal through music. Do you believe that it really is? Maybe in your in your life as a musician, you know, it's, it's live or die. But do you really think music still has the significance in our culture that it did 50 years ago, 60 years ago? Absolutely. I think that, you know, pop music is like the modern day folk music and people find ways to adapt it and make it their own, even if it is mass produced. I just, I think it's just like an innate part of human existence. And I don't, I don't really see any, like, I mean, I know there's a lot of changes with technology and accessibility in the external world, but it doesn't change the intrinsic existence of music. That's just sort of around us all the time. I mean, I worked as a subway performer for years. Exactly. That's I knew like, you. I knew that you were down in the. That to me is the most burning. Go ahead. Tell me. Tell yeah, me. Yeah, I just mean like that's uh, anybody can access music when you play in public, and people who could afford to pay uh, me and my colleagues for playing, you know, gave us money, and people who couldn't afford, they enjoyed the music they didn't pay is fine you know like we always came out of it with some money you know it was enough at the time for us to like live off of and um and not and that actually the money wasn't the only value that we got from playing in the streets it was all the networking connections that we made of people 
asking us to get involved in other projects and performances. So it's basically just like the best way to um, just tap into a community is to just play in a public space. Um, so yeah, there's definitely hierarchies and tiers in terms of like how people access music. But uh, I need to I need to ask you, Conchetta, to explain to me the. I mean, I I could not disagree with you more, being that I've interviewed uh, all the cats, the original folkies that came out of the early '60s, and I'm talking pre-Beatles, pre-drum mm -hmm. pre-drum set for Dylan at at at, at Newport. Um, pop music, I don't know, now again, everybody has a different form uh, or formulation or what they believe that is, but uh, unfortunately, Conchetta, most pop acts today couldn't tour live if their lives depended on it. This is a what I'm getting at is lack of authenticity. You're down in the subways burning, opening up the tune, breaking up time and form. People are getting off, and they'll drop you a dime, this here and this, that. Pop music today is not the Joni Mitchell or the Bruce Springsteen, or the James Taylor, or the Aretha Franklin, those people actually had to cut something redeemable and then go out and there was an actual touring circuit. So, I mean, you couldn't get more authentic than folk music, jug band music. A lot of these cats were quote-unquote skiffle players. They learned. Um, they were not out of the academy. Mm -hmm. So I look at pop music today, and setting aside, we haven't even gotten into the technology of the lack of all, my worry is that my daughters and future generations, because of the quantized rhythm, the mechanization of rhythm, the fact that human beings are copying machine parts, that's pop music. And if you can't detect that it's a machine, then we are in serious trouble. So what, tell me, explain to the audience what you mean by pop music today is, to, is the modern day folk music. Oh, um, you know, like it's the kind of music that you hear ubiquitously um, and not just in its original form as it's recorded but you know you hear kids singing it you hear people playing it on acoustic instruments replicating what they hear on the radio like people are always going to infuse life into you know something that's electronic <laughs> you know uh, I'm a music teacher and like I write different arrangements of pop songs all the time uh, in ways that are accessible for kids to play. And um, we change the lyrics, we play with it. Um, you know, that's the human element because music isn't just about the production side, it's about the consumption side, and the consumption side is still human. How much do you believe, because the masters of the great timeless music, the band and Dylan, the, the, they were obsessed with pre-production, and post-production, not a lot of post-production, pre-production, and the concepts of the album, and then allowing things to happen organically in the studio. In, in, the, in the body of work that you've done, how much do you have faith in the idea of bringing in people at the same time, hitting at the same time, maybe a, an overdub or two, but not wringing all the soul out of the music. Can you say that you are secure enough as a band leader that you can bring in cats and you guys can all hit at the same time when you record a record? Yeah, I mean, I think that re like recording in that way just requires a lot of rehearsal time. Well, see, now time. why, why, that's, that's a very dirty word, rehearsal. 
Why would you want to suck all the life out of a tune if you're going to over-rehearse everything? I mean, I think that that is the crux of what I'm getting at is that these cats, again, part of it was you were going into the studios and you had jingles, commercials, cartoons, soundtracks, record dates. They didn't have time to think. So, I mean, you're talking about rehearsal so you can get it as perfect as possible? No, I'm talking about rehearsal so that you are just spending a lot of time with each other so that you know your people really well. I mean, music is about intimacy, so... You know, I wouldn't want to play cold with someone that I didn't, no. had never played well, with that, before. Well, that, in the stu- if you were a studio shark, which you would have been back in the 70s, you would have been playing with all sorts of people you never played with. But I Right, mean- but there's a shared language. There's a shared culture to whatever you're walking into that everyone knows, like, this is studio work and this is how we're working. This is what we're doing. So I don't know. I mean, like, rehearsal is rehearsal is so important. That's how you get to know each other and rehearsing isn't just about playing all the time it's about talking to each other sure. and talking about the concepts and the feeling behind the music so i guess also i mean well i think it is a very dirty <laughs> word and i will tell you something else i mean the old masters again i i see you as, as a ubiquitous musician my my feeling is that uh maybe you have strengths in certain areas but mm-hmm. i mean you know like hampton hawes and you know those cats the jazzers They'd be, they'd be like, we have been sitting here intellectualizing this music and we haven't played a damn note. I mean, I guess it gets to the point when you can string all the... How do you know? I mean, obviously you want to bond with people. I think the difference is this. Wouldn't, isn't it fair to say... By the way, are you in a wind tunnel? There's a lot of wind, it sounds like. Uh, nope, I'm just in a room. Okay, cool. <laughs> <laughs> um, basically, uh, I... I the difference is, and you can push back on this, but you wouldn't need all this um, shared understanding and communal hanging and talking about the music if you had a band, a, a, like a like a like a like a touring band when mm-hmm. you guys that were... played together regularly. Exactly. So yeah. that's that's that to me is the missing link. Like, how is that? Is the reason for rehearsal? Is it just? It's not just you. It's just. It's just really hard to get super tight, not tight in like a perfectionist way, but I mean like telepathically. I mean, band, my favorite bands just, I mean, they'd make a record, maybe they wouldn't, but they'd be, there was a touring circuit. So they'd be out all year and then they go in the studio and they were basically live ready and they were ready. Mm -hmm. And they'd also had a lot more time. The studio didn't cost as much or they had bigger budgets, but isn't that the missing link is that you have to compensate now for the fact that you don't have a band that you can really, that you're making love with every night on the bandstand. So you're locked in together. Um, you know, I'm, I think pre pandemic, I was rehearsing a lot more with ensembles regularly and we were playing a lot of gigs, not necessarily, you know, I usually tour just like once a year, um, in the summer. And then throughout the year we perform, locally um so i feel like i was playing gigs you know two times a week sometimes three times a week um not always with the same ensemble but i was playing with the same ensembles pretty regularly you know i think touring is just different uh than it used to be and in what um, way in what wait in what it's changed during your career or you just are hearkening back to a different 
Um, you know, my parents were professional musicians. Who whoa, whoa, had, they whoa, had a whoa, whoa, whoa. Let's and... break that down for a minute. What, what, where were they marinating in? What were they doing? So that was like always on tour for maybe a decade, um, like throughout Canada and the United States. And they played clubs every week. And that was their world. I might, where, need, I might know, need to connect with them immediately. Are they still with us? Um, <laughs> it's okay. Listen, are you, were you, yeah. were you, were you, no, okay. So I'm, are you cut out for a minute? Were you, were you dwelling in Canada, Toronto? Is that where you were? Uh, no, I've never lived in Canada. No, no, no. So, um, you, no, where, I mean, were they like an Ian and Sylvia Tyson folk duo? What were they doing? What were the, was the, what was their uh, My parents were in a disco band. Oh my God. We need, I need audio of this stuff immediately. So this my dad sick. played uh, electric bass and oh, my mom played the funkiest cat ever, dude. This is the stuff. This is what I'm talking about. Wait, she played an electric violin in a disco band? Yeah, but yeah, and oh. she was the lead singer. Um, so, you know, that was their world, and I grew up, like, in the, I don't know, like, learning from professional, you know, they were professional musicians, and I learned a lot from how they managed their career, but also had to know that my career is going to be completely different. Sure. Because the world is completely different. The music so industry like, is, yeah. I'm absolutely. not really focused on like, oh, we have to go back to the way it was. It's just different now. We just have to learn how to live in it and make music in a different way. And there's downsides to it. But also, like, there were a lot of downsides to touring. Because even though you'd be connecting with your fellow musicians, you couldn't really have a holistic life if, like, the only way that you could make money is just by constantly being on the road. Well, actually, that's what's... But, but see, Conchetta, I, I believe there's... I mean, don't get me wrong. I believe that you are a conduit to the divine. I believe that you can access the divine when you get out of your own way. So I know you are a, an incredibly gifted musician, but it's a little out of touch because the only way my peers... I'm 42... The only way that they're making money is by touring. Back then, I mean, your parents—I mean, with all due respect—I mean, I, I'm, I'm not, maybe they, maybe they, maybe they cut records and had some good sales. But I mean, back then, you had a huge something called radio registry. So you were getting called for dates in the studio, mm -hmm. and you could afford. Oh yeah. Okay, so you could. Yeah, afford, you could be a professional studio. No, musician. but not even that. You yeah. could you could make dough. You could make enough to pay your $450 rent on a loft in the Lower West Side and then go out and play at night and jam out. And then on mm -hmm. top of that, there, like for the bigger name acts, there was cultivation of, of talent. Uh, none of those cats I mentioned earlier, Joni or Bruce or <coughs> James or those cats, they didn't have mm -hmm. radio hits in the first couple of albums. But when they hit, then all of a sudden... They, the, the records were making so much money, the records, not the touring, that they could go out on tour and the mm -hmm. and the record company would just write off a loss of $17,000 because they were making so much. So, I mean, the only way you can make money today, now again, we'll get into this later, but it, again, the music that I'm going to see is original, it's off the rails, on the rails, tempo shifts, imperfection is perfection. It's about soul and spirit. It's not about playing some formula trip. But that's the only way these cats can actually eke out any kind of living pre-pandemic. So, I mean, you must have a nice, I mean, obviously teaching is always there and it's a mainstay. And I like the fact that you can change up, you know, maybe put, put a song to, to different time signatures or, you know, tempo shifted or, you know, get the kids off. But I mean, 
the only way you make money today is by touring. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think there's a lot of different ways musicians make money these days. I know plenty of people who just earn all of their living recording from their home studio. Uh, you know, session work has turned into yeah. I mean, that that, that, is, that is. I mean, I you know what it is. You have to. I mean, do you really get off on that? I mean, to me, that is like that. I mean, that that's as close to wanking it as possible. You're you're. In... I mean, um, I do I earn my living from a variety of different mm -hmm. musical outlets. Like I'm, I, I actually get really bored just doing any one thing too much. Oh, I can understand. Yes. <laughs> so it's like I'm, and I'm also, you know, really into diversifying my sources of income. So I do a little bit of um, home studio recording and I do a little bit of, you know, I, I have been doing some gigs during the pandemic. Uh, really? But only, really? only outdoor. Um, I love this stuff. Can you like tell me? Tell me. Break. No, no, and then that's okay. But where? What are the venues? You're in New York, right? Uh, yeah. So I did a live stream concert that was like in the back, a backyard garden of a museum, which was really nice. Um, and there was only an audience of three people, and they were wearing masks and social distance but we filmed the whole thing and broadcasted it um and then i did another gig you know that was in a park over the summer so there's been some like outdoor opportunities and uh to play but you know the gigs are definitely way less than you know when things were open um did you have when when i mean things are like i said i go back to this idea of people are and i i mean so many i've been in, <clears throat> interviewing this last year or so quite a bit of quite a few mm -hmm. healers outside of music healing but you know like yoga teachers and and uh you know uh, body healers and and you know very beautiful divine creatures and you know i just cannot imagine and i you know i just want you to you know because I, I, I like the fact that being a, a you know a, a younger cat you're diversifying your income you have to do what you have to do I, I dig that but what has it been like <clears throat> I mean to me a real musician every time you go up on stage you're playing as if it's a matter of life and death if it's a formula trip and you can anticipate every single thing that's coming I don't know what that's about but that being said how hard has it been to I mean for most musicians even if they have a daily meditation practice their yoga is on the bandstand. How has it been altering for you to not have that? Because I mean, I I just cannot imagine somebody saying we're going to take the microphone away from. I mean, I'm so blessed to have the mic. I mean, I would be out of. I would be out way out. And I just wonder if what is it like to have that yogic uh, situation taken away, and and how have you dealt with it? Um, so kind of like what I was saying before, I like diversifying my sources of income as a musician. Uh, when the pandemic first hit, it just kind of threw everything off balance at first because the thing that got really busy was my online teaching studio. And I absolutely love teaching music and it is like a huge source of inspiration for me as a composer and as a performer. But all of a sudden I was like just a music teacher for like right. a, a few months. And I was like, Oh God, this is awful. <laughs> because when you're teaching, 
you give so much of yourself. It's just giving, giving, giving and supporting. And there was just, it just felt like I was like, you know, and teachers are kind of essential workers because we need to keep kids going, you know, and step it up for them. And so I was just like so drained because usually I take my summers and I go on tour for two months or whatever. And I usually do an artist residency. I usually go away for a month or something and write music. And I usually do, you know, like that's just been my flow for like the past decade or so. And so I was just like exhausted. Um, because you, it was a uh, part of it's also like uh that's one word. <laughs> it's just, it's just the idea of also, um, there's some kind of, it's, it's deflating when you have things that you truly look forward to artistically that are all of a sudden just taken away from you. Well, I mean, the thing that really has carried me through is just practicing my instrument. Like I have been practicing like crazy. Like, well, that's what I, you know, Conchetta, um, I mean, do you, I mean, here we go. I mean, I'm just looking at our mutual friends. This is why I friended you because I'm not assuming, you know, all these people deeply intimately, but quite a few of them are off the rails musicians. I mean, they don't F around. I'm, I'm looking here. Jeff, yeah. Jeff Hill, Luca Benedetti, Carl Berger, Jonathan Goldberger, Jacob Silver, the list goes on and on. You know, Joan Chu, my my longtime Misty uh-huh. Boyce. Yeah, Joan and I played in a band together. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, Misty Boyce, Marvin Sewell. I mean, I've interviewed all these cats, and they're mm-hmm. all off the freaking – I mean, they are taking chances. I mean, they, they, they play the role if they're, if they're hired for a gig. I get that. But this is not your, your you know, your mainstream um, musicians. These are people who are burning, and it's a matter of life – and death. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, <clears throat> what has been, the, I guess, separating the fact, like, yeah, you have to survive, you have to sing for your supper, so you have been diversifying, and there have been stops and starts, but can you just talk about, I think, because I think it's important for people like you, who are obviously very resilient, think outside the box, your dad was obviously the funkiest bass player around playing disco music, your mom was on fire, I mean, what, when it, when it gets to the point of you're like, is this ever going to end because of the insanity? Are we ever going to get back to this idea of spiritual communal, just that focus of that live aspect? What is it that is, what is the hardest part about that? And and what is your advice to, you know, like Joan is on fire on, you know, Joan's, Joan's starving to death right now. You know, she wants to get back on stage. I mean, you know, you know, what is the hardest part? of this when it creeps in when you when you feel deprived of being unable to liberate on the bandstand and what is your advice to people about how you don't get stuck on it uh (laughs) i all i can say is like what i I don't know i mean i have so many friends who are musicians who are finding community through online spaces uh and who during the warm months were able to find some spaces outside where we could safely play music with each other. Um, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm really lucky. I'm not uh, in a, in a tough financial situation because I teach and I have a master's degree in music education and um, I've been plugged into that for a long time. But again, it's not what I do all the time. And now it, it has become so much of my time. So it feels incredibly off balance. But in the moments where I feel 
really desperate to play music with other people. Um, I have just been practicing a whole lot, and practicing is like not just doing scales, but like free improvisation. Oh yeah, now we're getting somewhere. Um, now we're I've going. been doing a lot of stuff with like um, just like drone tracks, yeah, you know, yeah. like playing, you know, and just improvising over that and. Uh, my friend, a friend of mine gave me a really good piece of advice when I was just having a hard time feeling motivated. And he was like, just play whatever you want to play. Like, don't feel like you have to improve your shifting technique or, you know, like work on something technical. Like just, or, or maybe you just want to play a song that you wrote or something that you know really well that you connect with. Um so, like, if I can meet myself there, then, like, all this other stuff starts to come out. Um, the thing that I don't know if you're aware of is that I had a really terrible um, hand injury six months before the pandemic. I was attacked by a dog and oh, it I'm almost so sorry tore, to hear oh my God. yeah, it almost tore my middle finger off on my left hand. Um, <laughs> my God. so I had to have hand surgery like in December. And so while I was struggling with the hand injury, I was really getting into singing and I just started like singing all these gigs <laughs> and I'm, a, I always love singing and I, I sing on my albums and I sing as a backup vocalist, but I've never like, I've never like promoted myself as a singer. Um, and then all of a sudden I was like getting all these gigs, like singing because I oh, couldn't use so, my hands. Because you're, I mean, can you, could you sing acapella for us right now? Um, yeah. What would you want to hear? I want you to play whatever you, whatever you feel, you feel like getting out of your system. Oh, um, you wrote, you've, have you written, have you written a song about the, your finger that almost got chewed off? <laughs> <laughs> no. Yeah, no. No, I mean, like, like, yeah, just whatever, whatever, whatever you want to play, whatever you want to sing. I, I mean, the audience is waiting. Um, I don't know. Um, I guess I really, it's kind of cheesy, but I always really like singing this jazz standard. Do it. Uh, it's called Misty. I'm sure you've heard of it. Errol Garner. Oh, come on. It's an old. I yeah. actually, I actually taught one of his students. Uh, she was 94 years old. That is amazing lineage yeah. right there. <laughs> and Holy I taught, cow. And she came to me for songwriting lessons, and she was 94 years old. And I was an artist in residence at a senior center for this, like, Brooklyn Arts Council thing. Hmm. And, and she ended up being one of my students, and she showed me all these charts she had that he had given her and she was like oh yeah he was my neighbor he's played bass with my brother and like she wrote the most amazing songs um what, and... what were they just really like those guys that everybody tuned to their heart everyone had their own individual sound anyway um I, you sing misty first and then we'll, we'll keep going okay should i sing the whole song all right i'll just sing I it want you to, oh, can yeah, you hear me okay dude, you I sound so thing. snug in this apartment it's perfect okay <laughs> Um, look at me, I'm as helpless as a kitten up a tree, and I feel like I'm clinging to a cloud, I can't understand, I get misty, just holding your hand, walk my way, 
and a thousand violins begin to play. Or it might be the sound of your hello. That music I hear, I get misty the moment you're near. You can say that you're leading me on, but it's just what I want you to do. Don't you notice how hopelessly I've long? That's why I'm following you on my way. Would I wander through this wonderland alone? Never knowing my right foot from my left, my hat from my glove. I'm too misty and too much in love. I'm just too misty and too much in love. <laughs> <laughs> Tremendous dynamics on that. I mean, just beautiful work. Thank you. Yeah, so I have been, oh. so I started studying like a ton of jazz standards when I had my hand injury, and I was, that's like one that I've always loved and come back to, but, um, you know, Thelonious Monk, so challenging because the intervals are so wild and all over Absolutely. Yeah, you know as a music, I mean... Um, Conchetta, I want to be very clear. I, the idea is that if I came to see you practice, I would want you to be practicing what you don't know. There's no, right. you know what I'm saying? Like that to me, the, I mean, Sonny Rollins is practicing. It sounds beautiful. Charles Lloyd, those guys are search, they're sound seekers. So are you. Your ears are huge. So the idea is like, I would, I think that that's the best, that's the idea. The, the misnomer. And I think it has a lot to do with the academy. And I, I know you're really, and you're paying the bills and singing for your supper through teaching. But I'm very, I'm very ambivalent about the academy because I really feel that um, every, a lot of cats come out sounding sounding like their professors and there that's one reason there's a there's a homogenous oh yeah so well, that's a really yeah. big reason why i became a teacher because mm -hmm. i also hate that Good. well no <laughs> see you I know what to, i knew see i knew you and i wanted yeah. to change that because i want my students to like you know sound like themselves and discover their own voice and i have some students who've gotten so great that i'm i'm like but um I think that okay, so like no, yeah, I, I want to stop. You know, I want to. The floor is yours. I'm, I'm going to just shut up. I want you to talk about your. The, the, this is so important because you're really one of the first cats that actually said to me, "The reason I became a teacher is because I am so sick and tired of the homogenization of sound, and I want to make sure that my kids have their own individual voice." So let's talk. I I, I don't believe you have any you know necessarily literature out. But what are the steps you go through, especially when you have to break somebody out of their mold and, and push them out of their comfort zone in order to grow? Um, you know, I think that, uh, okay, I grew up learning classical violin. That was my first instrument. And I grew up doing these, like, recital competition things where everybody plays the same piece. And it was a nightmare. I felt tortured. Yeah. <laughs> because it's like everyone's playing the same piece. How are you supposed to sound 
different. Exactly. It was awful. And then I got really into playing, you know, I used to listen to like El Shankar and like oh, copy the, right in the you money. know, like you're right in the bank. Yeah. Copy the violin parts I heard and see how I could like play with that. And then, you know, I started singing along with jazz records and, you know, I just was like so done with, I, I had to readopt my love for classical music later on, um, which I would love it now. And I, primarily play a lot of classical music now but I'm always like switching into different genres all the time um but like with my students I just every time I see them in a lesson I'm like what song do you want to learn <laughs> I don't assign them music okay I ask them like what do you want to play okay and if they're like and if they're like I don't know I'm like well let's write something together and then they write their own song and okay so original, right off the bat if they say I don't know which probably is a normal answer you're already helping them create original music. The kids feel so empowered, even if it's just like a little line of three notes, it's theirs. And then they go crazy. They start writing all these, like, I have a 12 year old student who's writing a, a violin cello chamber piece right now. She's so excited about it. Good. I didn't oh, even assign beautiful. it. She beautiful. just started doing it. So I just give them, a, like, I give them, I give them, the, the choice and the freedom to do what they want, but also I give them the support that they need to accomplish that goal. So it's like, what technique I guess, I guess do you it, need? You know, if somebody comes to you, though, you know, and, and it's so, you know, I, I, you're somebody that can play through time and you can, you know, you're not intimidated by odd metered music. I'm sure you've been marinating with the Mahavishnu Orchestra and Jerry Goodman. Uh, you know, and these guys who are just burning rocks, synth, rocks, opera music. But, you know, uh, Conchetta, like during your parents' generation, when they were coming up, um, there was no auto-tune. You tuned with your heart and you had your mm -hmm. own tuning. And that's why Monk wasn't really recognized at that time. You talked about the intervals, but he wasn't recognized as his genius because nobody understood what he was doing. And, and that, that could be said for, for so many cats. So, mm -hmm. I mean, like, because auto-tune, yeah, you're technically in tune. But if you start to do that, that can become your whole musical life as opposed to tuning to your heart. Do you encourage kids to tune to their heart? Yeah, of course. I mean, and also intonation is relative, right? There's oh, no absolute listen to perfect... You. Yeah intonation so auto-tune is its own kind of tuning like you know like if you're gonna sing in auto-tune that's cool I'm sure there's a lot of creative things you can do within that structure and framework but I would encourage someone to try something different and that I bet there's some really cool things you could do with auto-tune I've never really played with it myself well let's be clear but, there's a reason why you've never you know it's not a priority what I'm saying is I'm how, just not really like I don't really uh yeah. connect with the electronic music medium though I think there's a lot of really cool creative music out there and I actually did do an album with electric violin uh, free improvisation and that was my stretch to try something like and I think it came out really really nice but then I was like okay I want to go back to just feeling the feel of my wooden you know right, right. <laughs> instrument like I, I loved doing it but it was like okay I tried that and I got that off my bucket list so you know that's just not my own way of expressing but I do know some people who are very creative 
with electronic music. Yeah, no, and let's we're not judging here, but you know, I just want Conchetta's uh, method. Uh, your philosophy of out of tune isn't always out of tune. Um. Yeah. Well, I mean, pitch is is uh, <laughs> right. infinite. So infinite. The way that we. So the way that we organize pitch is just like a, the scale system that we use is a Western European scale system that, you know, originated from ancient Greece. And there's different types of scales. There's tempered scales and there's scales that are not tempered. And, and so, I mean, and then you look at different cultures have different scales because they organize this. It's sort of like pitch is infinite and then you slice it up in different ways depending on your your culture and how you hear music so there's no like out of tune doesn't really like exist it's all relative to the context that you're performing in i guess if somebody but i mean with with your students if they have a very unorthodox style do you work with them on moving into because i mean a lot of people want to a lot of teachers because my older daughter's teacher is a great teacher but she's in the classical bag and i you know I had to come at her and say, I'm tired of her learning just these, you know, st static classical tunes. I want her to stretch out. I want her to play blues scales. And, you yeah. know, you know, what I'm saying is if somebody comes to you and they're, they're different and yet it yeah. still works, like, are you willing to work with that or are you going to guide them towards, and I'm not saying it, it just, some people, you seem to have the ability to teach any kind of style without reverting back to the academy or the the curriculum or what it, how it's supposed to be that's the part man i mean you know i mean none of these guys uh everybody had their own individual style because everybody had their own tuning i mean that that's just it was well yeah i think you have to let teachers teach how they feel comfortable teaching in the same way that you have to let people play music in the way they feel comfortable playing like if you can meet somebody where they're at based on their experience and who they are as a person, then they'll grow from there. And I think that's just so hard to do, just that basic just accepting someone where they are and who they are. Like, that's, that's what teaching is. It's like getting to know someone and then getting to know them better and giving them the support and the freedom to express themselves. And, uh, yeah, I've had kids that have, like, performed and recorded, like, crazy soundscape compositions. I had one student who wrote a song called Chicken Puff and all the kids just made like chicken squawking noises. <laughs> and, like, Perfect. I mean, yeah, cool. Like whatever, that's music. Like, and the parents are like so happy with it. They're skeptical at first. They're like, wait, what are they learning? And then they're like, oh wait, like they're learning that any sound can be made music. <laughs> you know? Are you hip to? I, I really am hoping that you say no so I can foist this cat on you, but are you hip to Sugarcane Harris? Mm mm. Okay. No. Okay, so he's an old school cat. He's left us a long time ago, but he, you know, you, mm -hmm. I really want to foist this on. I'm going to read this from you. He was in a band called Pure Food and Drug Act, and it was a matter of bringing in. Um, They were a rock, funk, not, not really funky, like real interesting sort of you know they had guys that had different different backgrounds but i want to read this 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 quote to you and then then you can riff on it <clears throat> this is from randy resnick who was in that band he said sugarcane rarely practiced he was classically trained musician he had a certain personality uh things in combination with drugs that doomed him someone would have had to kidnap him and 
put him in a cage with a whole bunch of manipulations for him to reach his potential. He was very much like Jimi Hendrix. When we played, people went nuts. Sure, there were a lot of drugs in the audience. Some people were in paradise. Some were leaning on the stage. Don's playing was incredible. He would play this screechy violin and sing. Sometimes he was out of tune, but he was a very soulful player. For someone who was trained as a classical player, his technique was horrible because he could play out. Still, he had incredible chops. He was so soulful and funky and had the most incredible ears. He sang through his instruments so well. Now, mm-hmm. how much, how did you learn? When did you get to a point where you're like, you know, I'm not, everyone's learning through the rest of their life, but um, how did you learn to sing through your instrument? Um. I, I, my, my teacher, when I was a kid, she made me sing. That was part of our lesson. Every time I played something, she said, if you could sing it, you can play it. And, um, that was, you know, an integral part of learning violin. I never thought about of myself primarily as a singer. Um, but then it just sort of emerged through studying violin. I was really lucky to have a really, no, I, I mean, I, I, teacher. I, so, 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 because I mean, when I'm talking about, you listen to the, Mm-hmm. To the to the to the Rossan Roland Kirks and the, the multiple mm-hmm. horn guys, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. it's it's not vocally singing, but like where you can, um, where when you're when you're soloing specifically, you're singing through that instrument. Is it? I mean, uh-huh. how did you? I guess maybe the point is. Well, I don't know if you're familiar with my work, but I actually sing and play violin at the same time. Like, oh my! That's this, my whole, you're humbling me right now. That's my whole album. Is just you know for five string violin and voice um my recent album that came out in september um so i started to tap into that more because i was like oh i used to do this as an exercise but like actually this can become a composition so you know like that started to emerge how the voice and the violin were kind of intertwined and like when i sing sometimes i imagine my finger placement on the violin as I'm singing. So I'm like really mentally connecting the instrument to the voice, you know? Um, but that happens through years of like repetition. And I don't know, I liked what you were saying about this musician. You were talking about how he never practiced <laughs> because <laughs> like practice is like, we could have a whole conversation about what that is. Oh yeah. Um, Big time. But like really it's just like constantly making connection with your instrument mm-hmm. and you can have goal-oriented practice, which sometimes, depending on the phase of your life that you're in, that can be good if you need more structure. Or you can have, like, really unstructured practice, but it's really just meeting your instrument every day. So even if that guy wasn't, like, practicing scales, if he's, like, screaming and, like, playing violin, like, that is expressing with his instrument, and that is practice. I cannot wait it. to send you some of these tracks because he was – I mean, he is on fi- – It's it's actually very – raw rock funky nasty work yeah i played a gig with a famous um art rock violinist (laughs) oh my gosh i can't remember his name but he was like that like he was like playing violin on the stage and singing with it but in a kind of punk rock style total punk total punk rock yeah Yeah, i love it i Um, mean (laughs) you know i mean that's the other thing like you know, I interviewed Jean-Luc Ponty a couple of years ago, mm-hmm. and we had such a ball. Oh, and he, cool. he's like, um, he was talking about playing free jazz um, for one person at the hot club in France. He was ready to, uh-huh. he was really ready to walk away. And at the time, uh, you know, uh, even before that, you know, the violin, when they got away from sort of the more romantic, 
um, you know, sort of show tunes and bebop became uh, the popular music of the day. The violin uh, or the fiddle, I call it, uh, didn't Mm -hmm. really uh, fit into the bebop context. And he was able to, um, you know, sort of fuse that. uh, He had a very serendipitous... um, uh, he was ready to walk away from music because he was like playing like John Coltrane, but he was there was one person in the crowd, and uh, and then uh, John Lewis from the MJQ Quartet, uh, mm-hmm. uh, he connected with Frank Zappa at, at a uh, festival Monterey or some festival like that, and, and he told him about this guy Jean Luc Ponty, and at the same time George Duke, the key, rest in peace, the great keyboard player, knew about Jean Luc, so eventually Jean Luc came into Zappa's band, which was a highly symphonic rock band. I mean, it was very mm-hmm. highly orchestrated. And it was very, like, orchestrated. Yeah, everything was really written out. It was ridiculous. I mean, you know, but also, I mean, like, like you know, he mm-hmm. hated, you know, Frank's like, Jean-Luc, play this many bars and dance on mm-hmm. one foot. And he was, like, sick mm-hmm. of that. He hated that stuff. But mm-hmm. I wonder if you can talk about, um, you know, how – a, a time in your in your career when you integrated the fiddle into a non uh, a setting that is non-traditional for that instrument is uh-huh. that something that you really get off on and you know i mean and how have you because like to me you seem to be a bit of an omnivore when it comes to music i just wanted to say that um i remembered the name of the punk violinist oh, his name is walter Stedding. oh I don't know if you've I'm not hip him, to that cat, no. But he played in the um, kind of art rock scene in the 80s and um, mm. played at a lot of, like, Andy Warhol's parties oh, earlier yeah, on. yeah, that's what I'm talking He's, about. You, you should look him up. He's still alive. He i got to get to that cat, man. He lives in Greenpoint. Um, and we played a, a show together, and it was, like, a really interesting bill because I was playing these, like, soft lullaby oh, I <laughs> love that. I need, do we have audio? I, I need an audio of that. Um, do we have audio of and that? Then, and then he and then he breaks out his set and he's like, <laughs> he's like bumping his violin through the amplifier. Like, right, right, right. This is like right. really cool to see that contrast going back to different ways that you can express yourself through violin. Like it was just really cool to be on a bill with someone who used the instrument in such a different way than I was using it. Um, so I like I play. You know, I think strings are cool because they they are. The, you know, mimicking the human voice, like how the human voice makes sound and the pitches you can make are, uh, you know, they're not fixed pitch. They're not like fretted like a guitar or, or like on a piano, you have hammers hitting strings. It's like you can move in between all the different notes. So there's just so, like so many different things you can do with the sound of the violin. Um, and I, I started playing viola when I was in high school um, just simply so that I could get a scholarship to play with this orchestra. They were like, oh, we, our violin section's full. Like, can you play viola? And I was just like, yes. And I lied and, like, didn't even have <laughs> a viola. And then I, I like, fig- I figured it out. Like, I highlighted all my music. And then I got, like, super into, like, viola music. I was like, okay, now I'm a viola player. Um, and then, like, two years ago, I actually bought myself a five-string violin, which is, like, a viola and a violin and one instrument. And I'm like, okay, now, <laughs> like, now I'm at the epitome of, like, expressing myself on this instrument. No, I really, I, no, I mean, I'll, now I'm going to throw out another fiddle player that 
was highly inventive. I hope, and I'll voice them on you as was Richard Green. Mm-hmm. Do you know Richard? Yeah, I don't know. I don't think I know of his work. Well, okay, so so he was with Bill Monroe, and then mm-hmm. um, was in the Jim Queskin Jug Band, and then wound up in a band called C Train, which mm-hmm. was a very progressive rock band. And he was playing. I mean, they were doing bills with the Mahavishnu Orchestra, and you know uh, he had now. And I, this is like if I came to see Conchetta play, I'd want. You putting that, that the the violin. I w- I'd like you to plug in and, and get as much feedback as possible from the amps. And then on top of that, have you used a wah pedal before? Uh, when I was in high school, like I tried out stuff like that. Um, I mean, please again, incorporate. I'm I mean, not really. Yeah, yeah. I'm not really into like the electronic sounds. Like, I, although I have an EP on my Bandcamp uh, of me improvising on electric violin. Um, it's called Duo Ideas. Wow. It's awesome. Whoa. But, you know, it's not my, it's, it's just not my voice. Like my voice is the vibration of wood mm-hmm. of the instrument totally. and the strings and the, and the feeling of the instrument, like actually moving you, you know, I guess like if you crank up an amp, <laughs> there's enough like crazy vibration in the room that you can feel it. But <laughs> I like that more intimate, you know, the instrument is right up next to your ear. That's just like, and it's, it sounds when the instrument's up to your ear, it's like you can hear all the weird screaks and scritches and scratches that someone across the room like doesn't experience. And then you're like, it's kind of like an intimate secret between you and your instrument. Like, oh, this sounds like shit up to my ear, but like across the room, it sounds good, you know? And um, I mean, when you say when you say intimate, uh, it seems to me that that connotates quieter. It's quieter than an electric setting. And I just don't I would like. Well, it's not just about sound, though. It's about tactile. It's about like like it's also like. Uh, because you feel music, you don't just hear it. Like I could be deaf and I could still feel the music on my instrument if I play. I love it. I love it. Yeah. So that's what I mean. It's not. But what I'm I'm saying, I want to be able to let the body dance at an intimate concerto concert. Would that be tolerated by what I consider to be pretty um, people that are used to sitting and staring at somebody's facility? I want to dance. Um. I'm trying to. I mean, I mean, I would sure. have been. A, I would have been a fourth person at that uh, event with a mask, and maybe, yeah. you know, you know, maybe they would have ripped me off the bandstand. But I mean, I want to let the body dance. I don't want to. I mean, the intimate. When I hear intimate, I hear uh, tables. Um, you know, two drink minimum. Mm-hmm. Uh, in and out. You know, thanks. Oh for co- well, I'm sorry that. It's been so sullied <laughs> no, no, because I definitely don't think of. That. I don't want to. I, do, I don't I want do a heavy love... metal. I don't want heavy metal. People getting their teeth kicked in. I just want. Yeah. I want to dance. I do love like house concerts. Like those are my right. favorite. Um, those are my favorite kinds of shows. Um, and again, because I love playing acoustic, I don't like having all these things strapped to me, like all the <laughs> cables. And, yeah, no, the wires. Like, just... Yeah, no, I do. And like I'm living in that right now because every time I'm teaching or practicing or making some Instagram video, I have like all these like things strapped to me, and I hate it. Because you need to have um, more output or something. Like just because I need 
I need to make everything digital right now because of just this temporary terrible situation <laughs> that we're terrible, all in. Just terrible, yes. Um, and so, you know, I've got like the sheet music on one screen and I've got the video on the other screen and I've got the headphones and then the thing plugged into, you know, the microphone, you know, and it's just like, hate it. So I love those shows that you can just play acoustic, just take the violin out of the case and it's just me and I'm just singing and I've got my violin and um, my partner is a percussionist and sometimes he plays percussion with me live, which is really cool. Um, and, yeah, it can get dancey. I don't know if it's dance music. <laughs> well, no, I mean, but... I just want to be – I mean, I, no, I, that's the thing. See, again, that, that term should be thrown away. Any music is danceable. Any, you could, you, it could be arrhythmic and you could dance to it. Totally. Um, but it's not um, – it's not – the music that I write, and I'm talking about my solo project because I play in a lot of other bands. Like I play in Latin music bands and jazz ensembles and all kinds of different. Let me ask you things. though. Let me ask you. Like if you're playing in a, you're playing in a, in an electric setting, you you have to be plugging in. I mean, you know, Latin. Yeah, music. my my five string violin is an acoustic electric, so it's an acoustic instrument that has like a pickup that you plug into the back. Of the instruments, so that, that, I want to, I want to, I want, I want to marinate on your on that when you're plugging in and burning with the salsa, Latin jazz, Latin salsa band. I mean, that's got to be ridiculous. Well, we don't really play salsa. We're more like a South American like fusion band. We're called um, Inti in the Moon. Yeah, well, so. look, you know, we got to find the new name because Latin is a language that was spoken in Rome. These are Sp is it Spanish? I mean, it's Latin. Is, uh, Latin is in well, Rome. Yeah, what's it's really kind of interesting because the name of the band is Inti and the Moon, and Inti is a Quechua word, which is like Native American. So we were, you know, our concept when we started the band was that we were fusing, we were fusing cultures together through music. So um, Inti so like a is, world music, almost a like world music kind of thing. It's like a world fusion, but it, it's coming from the perspective of South American Andean music because the guy who founded the band is from Ecuador. Um, and we met actually playing in the subway, and then we've had this band for like more than 10 years. But I mentioned Inti in the Moon because that's probably a situation where you'd definitely be dancing <laughs> to that. Conchetta, I, I mean, I would be. I, I know that that you would liberate me in the in the greatest way possible, and I would be healed for weeks, days, probably. Mike, my, I want to. I, I want to talk to you very seriously about this concept. Um, you know, uh, it's definitely within the context of a band, but it's the idea. Um, the idea that you're getting lost you leave you play a tune you wreck i mean you play a standard or something and then you leave the head of the tune and then the group collectively loses where the down the one is where the downbeat mm. is you know and then ultimately through telepathy big ears trust and love you all are able to come back in on the one even though you kind of lost it for a period of time so i wanted you to talk about your concept that any note can be the one mm-hmm Sure, yeah, because that's um, – it's funny that you just painted that whole scenario because the first gig that I played with other people right. after the pandemic was an outdoor gig in Jersey City, and I was with this band, Inti and the Moon, and we hadn't played together in, like, a year and a half. Perfect. Like, the last time we saw each other, the lead singer was pregnant, and now here she was with, like, a one-year-old baby. 
Like, right. so we, just because of the pandemic and then my hand injury, like it was just so long since we had played together. And then we're playing songs out of the blue that we like. I love it. I would have, I would have, I paid a hundred bucks to go see that. That's on. And it was so cool because like, I just had this like reminder of like, oh, like this is like not about playing this perfectly, but it's just about everyone supporting through their body language. Okay, like we forgot where the hook comes back in. So the lead guitarist is like <laughs> looking at all of us and he plays it a few times. Exactly. Until, it, I until love we this. Hear it, oh, I love until this. Until somebody else hears it and then they're like, oh, wait, we're on that. And then we keep playing it until the other person hears it and they're like, oh, right, right, right. And I know like there's always someone who's just like improvising for a little bit too long, but it doesn't, but no one in the audience knows that. <laughs> exactly. That's the other part. Nobody in the audience is re- I mean, I think that that you're telling me that you got off on that, that, that that was fun. I mean, obviously you were playing for the first time in a while, but just how that, that kind of ability for spontaneous creation of vocabulary is essential. Yeah. Well, I just feel really like supported when I'm playing with a band that, you know, I can express myself more because there's a foundation around me. Mm-hmm. And when I'm playing solo, it is so vulnerable. It, I had to like do a lot of live shows of my original music as a soloist before I like, it's taken me years to feel comfortable with just myself by myself on stage. Um, but I, I, I was really starting to get somewhere with it before my hand injury. I did a big tour the summer before that. And like I was playing solo shows like every day for six weeks. And by the end of it, I was like, yeah, I got this. You were burning. You were, this is before COVID you were doing this before COVID. I mean, if COVID didn't happen, I would have been touring in Europe. I was supposed to play at the university of Vienna last summer uh, to release my album and then I was going to do a tour and then I was also going to be doing a West Coast tour. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that got canceled. This well, no, but I want to know something because I mean, I am fully vested in your spirit. I think you are a conduit, you're a lineage, you're, you're, you're going to be a link in the chain for future generations understanding of how real music is made. But, you know, you know, philosophically, do you really... Believe, I mean, going to the university is, is beautiful and it's a great, I mean, you know, it's a opportunity for exposure. But, I mean, should people expect to hear a carbon copy of the album when they go see you live or it'll be a completely different show? Do you ever play the same song the same way once? No. I mean, you have to know that live music is a different product than recorded music. It's a different art Even form. when you're solo, different... though, Even when you're solo. Oh, absolutely. It's a different expression. I mean, so I was talking before about the intimacy of my ear next to the violin. One of the things that I did in the studio was I did a lot of close miking of the top of the violin. Beautiful. You could never, you could never hear that live. Right, really. right. Like, unless I guess you could do some live, like close miking, but there would also need to be, it's just never going to be the same product. And that's okay. They're, they're two different things but I don't think that somebody listening to my album would be like disappointed like oh it didn't sound like what you sounded like live <laughs> like I don't think like that would be although my first album Falling in Time I hired a jazz ensemble and I hired a classical string quartet and I recorded it was like more highly produced than this past album and I did have that issue a little bit more with the first album because I wasn't like out playing live with like eight musicians all the time. <laughs> um, 
so then when I did the second album, I was like, I want to do this like in a more stripped down way that it will sound a little bit truer to my purest sound. So then I had critics say it's not orchestrated enough. And enough like, of the critics. Man. Throw the critics. I'm going to burn the critics, man. <laughs> I was like, I hate. It's like you can never really get anything right um i mean here's the thing the 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 the, the, one of the conundrums i find as a as a rogue journalist and interviewing musicians i'm not a musician so i don't pretend that i know the technical side of it i'm deeply ensconced in i get off more on the musician than the music itself so these critics who come along and nitpick what they what they don't like about the hearing they're missing the whole point because the whole point is about the it has nothing to do with the instrument it has everything to do with the person. The instrument is just an apparatus. It's your arm. Right, yeah. And like, I was I know it's hard thinking... to ignore the critics, but it's like, in some way, it's like the most, it's the biggest problem in music. One of the biggest issues is that just the idea of the content, they're just rehashing the same stuff. Oh, they're, they're, they're basing it off of what is supposedly hip as opposed to saying, mm-hmm. well, this is what this individual person... I mean, Eric Dolphy, <clears throat> a lot of these people were very sensitive and they it, they took it very seriously when people were heavily critical of them. And then you had guys like Coltrane where, like, you know, a lot of white cats supported black music. And when he got into his modal phase, there'd be old women standing up saying, make him stop, make him stop. He just kept blowing through it. <laughs> and I know that it's easier said than done, but, you know, really... The critics, man, they, they, if you, you have to just keep going forward because I don't, I don't, they're not, they are not lend. I mean, let's just put it this way. Liner notes. I'm sure you collect vinyl or maybe have some vinyl. I mean, you know, you read the back of the albums from 65. Nat Hentoff was writing liner notes for Bob Dylan, Highway 61 and Charles Mingus at the same time. So it's all, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess like I want people to hear my music so in the one sense like I want it to be marketable just because I want the most number of people to hear it but Mm -hmm. then I definitely don't want to compromise my art and so I just keep sending it out there sending it out there and then once in a while you find someone who is like just willing to go a little bit outside of their box to bring you in to their audience and like I had like my first album was released on Waterbug Records, which what which is like a folk like singer songwriter. I love label. it. I love this. And stuff. the guy Andrew Calhoun, he runs the label, and he heard my album, and he was like, "Whoa, this sounds nothing like anything on my label, and I want to put this out because." Right, that, and the, the, you know, thankfully, there's still that's beautiful. I mean, that's so, the, to me that's the core. I mean, you have to do stuff sometimes to conform. But yeah. That was after 200 label submissions. <laughs> like I found whoa, Andrew, whoa. you know, oh, like that, you know what I mean? Like you have to work so hard to find those people. I'd like to think that once you find those people, then you find more of similar people, but I, you don't. No, you don't. Like, you no, no. You see keep... that you, that they're, they're a needle in a haystack and you know what? I give yeah. you a lot of credit. I don't know what the percentage is. One out of 200. It's a very low percentage, but that is, is, you know, I mean, <laughs> you know, Gar- Jerry Garcia, had his uh, ring f- uh, middle finger chopped off in an accident ch- chopping mm-hmm. wood with his brother mm-hmm. and it fundamentally changed the way he I, I mean he his unique style tone uh, you know I'm not saying he enjoyed losing a finger 
Um, but it clearly um, lent itself to him having some more alacrity around the instrument. And I just wonder, mm-hmm. I mean, granted, you still have your digit, thankfully. But, um, like, would, do you find yourself having to uh, reconfigure your, your, your fingerings? I mean, is, is, is it? Is oh, it... yeah, totally. So the finger is still there, but it's, like, really swollen with scar tissue. And, like, the upper joint doesn't completely bend all Why the way. Why would a dog so... ever react like that to you? Oh, it's just a crazy story. Okay, I don't, we, need to get, we don't need to get into it right yeah, so, no, so wrong. Anyway, so, yeah, so, so tell me tell me how you've compensated and has it changed your tone uh, and intonation? <clears throat> yeah, it's um, – I have to place the finger on a different part of, of the finger. You know, the placement is different to get the note to be in the intonation that I want. Right. And then I don't – I've, I've – permanent nerve damage on the tip of the finger and the side of the finger so i actually can't feel the finger it's numb yeah like it's just like pins and needles Mm. so um so then that was really weird to get used to but um you know as i was saying earlier i've been practicing a tremendous amount and a lot of that has been reconfiguring my my touch on the instrument my relationship to it um and then also uh, expanding how I express myself musically, focusing a lot more on singing and piano too. I've been practicing piano a ton because you don't need as much fine motor coordination on the tip of the finger to play piano as you do on violin. So that was really, I started doing piano a lot first before I transitioned into practicing violin again. Um, and actually it's, it's funny because people are like, oh, can you play like just as well as you did before the injury? And it's like, I don't know, but I play, I'm playing and it's different. <laughs> well, I want to, I want to, you know, um, this is way outside the box, but <clears throat> I mean, in, in, in daily living skills, brushing teeth, eating, whatever, um, you're going to have to make a decision about whether that finger is still a viable part of your body. I mean, I really, I mean, I, I feel like if you just don't want it to become a hindrance, uh, especially because, uh, um, who knows? I mean, it's, 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 it's kind of tragic, but at the same time, I feel like it's a gateway and a new opportunity for you to, um, stretch out even more. I mean, I don't know. Um, if it, I don't. Yeah, it just changes. It changes how you express yourself with the instrument. Um, and, that, yeah. and that dog needs to be held accountable. That's ridiculous. Um, I, I'm really sorry about that. Um, you know, before we wrap up set one here, Conchetta, I just really, I, I, I detect that you are a younger cat. Um, you know, um, I was hoping you could talk to people around the world that'll be listening now or when this goes up as a podcast <coughs> about a time that you reached the bottom of the pit and you were at the lowest point and you realized, um, you know, you could have gone towards the darkness, but you recognize that the bottom of the pit is really the best place to be because that's where realism is activated. And at that point, um, your, your point of view changed and it was nowhere to go, but up. Yeah, I think, um, I, as a kid, really identified with the violin as who I am, and I think a lot of young musicians, they invest so much in that instrument being, like, 
who they are, whatever your instrument is. And the academia encourages you to be like a highly specialized player on one thing. The second that you let go of that, like that's who I am. And then you realize like I'm an artist and this is one tool of expression. And I have a hundred different million different tools of expression to to express myself with mm. you stop obsessing and focusing so much on being good at that one thing and you actually can express yourself better and in many different kinds of ways so the places where i felt like i was ready to quit music were like the times when i felt like i'm such a failure because i'm not playing in the way that everyone else plays this instrument um and the the and if you if that's your standard, you're never going to achieve it because you are not like everyone else. So, you know, I had to really let go. And actually, I quit playing for a year. Mm -hmm. And actually, it was so good because I let it go and I realized it wasn't really going anywhere. It It's okay because I'm, mm. I'm still an artist, even without my violin. So then I, when I reconnected with it, it was like, such a feeling of freedom um so i would say you know did to you think, think about what you your identity with were you, you know were, was there in that interim in that year that you took off how did you learn to let go of um because you're right it's about um i was just interviewing cosmic cat from uh france and he's a violin player and he was part of these orchestras and his goal was to be a lead soloist and um it's 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 you know we are obsessed with riffology and technique and chops mm -hmm. and, and and then copying comping you know being like doing it the way you're supposed to be doing it so in terms of judgment comparison and how you were perceived how did you just have to say f it how did you let that stuff mm -hmm. fall away because i i it doesn't matter music in any career that's what hangs up people the most. And I know after 10 years, it took me a couple of years to find my voice. But once I started to get to all these amazingly shaman elders and I, you know, really be on the stage and dance with them, uh, you know, I was like, all right, I got my singularity. I'm on my way. That's success. So how did you mm -hmm. let go of those things that were gnawing at you prior to your hiatus? I had to completely change like the people and the culture that I was around. Like I had to really make an exodus like from that world. And I quit my first year at a classical conservatory and I went to oh, beautiful. like a, li a liberal arts school I and this. I studied social science and I was like, I, I entered into this new school. I, I graduated my undergrad from Smith college in, in sure. Massachusetts. Right. And I, I actually went in not as a music major. Like I just went in and was like, I don't know what I'm going to do, but it's not going to be music. And I, I like was able to meet all these people and not even tell them that I was a musician. And then I realized, Oh my God, like I'm valuable. Like <laughs> even without music, like people still like me. I don't need this for my self esteem. And I was in all these social science classes and I had all these incredibly different perspectives because I was the only one in the room who like had an arts training background and I was like wow I have so much to bring 
to all these other areas. Like if my violin broke and like my arms fell off, like <laughs> I would still be so valuable to the world. I just had to prove that. Yeah, to myself I love that. No, I that's that was my last. Yeah, go ahead. I didn't really believe that like innately. I just really thought that people would not like me if I didn't play violin well. It's so crazy, like to say it out loud, but that's what academia music does to musicians. And then what, um, that's amazing how much pressure there is to be. You you use the word liked. Um, that it's like almost like a popularity. I mean, the idea of assimilating into some kind of cult or popularity, like oh, it's we, like yeah, it's like way deeper than popularity. It's like complete self worth. Um, yeah. So I, you know, I was like really doing well as this, you know, social science major, and then. Um, I was working as in the music library, and sometimes I would practice violin in the practice. Well, you were like rooms. an audiophile there. Nobody knew that I was a musician, <laughs> and then like one of the cello teachers like heard me practicing. He was like, "What?" Like, he's like, "I know you like work here as a hall monitor, but like I didn't realize <laughs> that you played." Oh, this is so and like this is like Goodwill Hunting or something, you know? He yeah. like encouraged me to take violin lessons, so then my you know i guess it was my junior year i started taking lessons with the teacher there um but i still refused to play in the orchestra i didn't want to go that far mm. <laughs> i was like i'm not doing that I but then it. eventually i got more into like playing in bands um it rekindled my like i realized i could have a career in music that wasn't just like a seat in an orchestra you know um Conchetta, i we have been burning for about 80 minutes here. I, I, uh, I would love to do part two with you in the near future. Um, yeah, it was really nice to meet you and, you know, thanks for having me on the show. Um, and you know, I hope you enjoy the music. If you check out. No, I, I mean, I, I absolutely will. I just, uh, I, I feel like we're just scratching the surface here. You know, it'd be, it'd be great to, to do a part two down the road sure um yeah let's keep in touch and um yeah thanks for for reaching out yeah well i think most importantly i think what you just said is it's amazing to hear it out loud i think that um part of my whole show is um rekindling that that spirit inside that you've done you've, you've self-generated that over time um but the bottom line is that um, I don't really think it's about, uh, necessarily, well, first of all, I, I don't really, modern recorded music is a major issue for me, just the way, and I realize that you do, don't do things perfectly like everybody else does, but, um, the, I really want to see the person in a, in a live setting, and I realize that's impossible now, but I, I do want to let you know that, um, my most important thing is to make sure that you had fun. And quite honestly, it gives people an opportunity to learn more about the musician um, because, uh, you know, I, I mean, that that's it's coming out of your soul and your heart. So, I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, continued con continued success. And uh, and uh, I'll send you some of that sugarcane Harris stuff. I think you'll get off on that. OK, cool, cool. It was yeah. great talking with you. Have yeah. a great rest of your weekend. Yo, happy Thanksgiving, Conchetta. Yeah, you too. Happy Thanksgiving. Peace. Bye. Bye. Well, just another whistle stop here on the Jake Feinberg Show. Thanks to Jim Parisi. We'll be back tomorrow.
Till then, peace. Crazy night. Crazy night.